Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Kate Moody. In today's episode, we're asking, how does financial services make it all about the customer? To misquote Bill Clinton's presidential campaign manager, James Carville, it's the customer, stupid. No matter what variation of fintech, financial service, bank, B2B or B2C that you're building or growing, there's always the all-important end user. While we may think that it's a given, many businesses get lost in other things, which mean they often forget this key principle. So in this show, we've put together a panel of amazing guests to discuss what is customer-centric design and how is it implemented? What are the biggest challenges of the current frameworks? And what could this look like in the future? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Hey there, financial risk and compliance professionals. Would you like to know how your peers are preparing for the year ahead? Well, the good news is Comply Advantage's new State of Financial Crime report is built on a global survey of 800 senior compliance professionals. So it provides a clear-eyed look at the views of the financial services industry. To explore trends including environmental crime, crowdfunding, sanctions on Russia, and much more, download your copy of the report at complyadvantage.com insights. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? It's standing yeah. only. We are bringing After Dark to the Steelyard in London on the 29th of March. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com forward slash After Dark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. Started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this super interesting topic. First off, I'm very excited to be joined by my 11FS colleague, Will Jones, Executive Creative Director at 11FS. Thanks for joining us, Will. Um, I think this is like probably the first time we've done a show together, actually. Like, we're probably fed off of each other in real life. But, um, <laughs> uh, what I think can, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about what it means to be an Executive Creative Director? I mean, look, as with any job title, it can mean whatever you want anywhere in the industry. But here... It happens to mean that uh, I head up uh, creative and design across the business and I'm mostly interested in making sure that the products we create for ourselves and for our clients actually deliver on user outcomes that make a difference and hopefully delight in all the right places. Awesome news. Um, we also have a debut on Fintech Insider for an 11FS award winner, Diego Zax, head of design at Ramp. Welcome, Diego. Um, I've got like a massive Fintech crush on Ramp, but for any of our listeners that have not come across you guys, uh, would you mind telling us a bit about you know you individually and Ramp as a, as a business, please? Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here uh, and speak on behalf of the Ramp design team. Yeah, Ramp is, is uh, we're building the next generation of finance tools for companies. So anywhere from corporate cards and expense management to bill payments and accounting integrations, all of that put together designed to save businesses their two most valuable assets, which is their shareholders' capital and their employees' time. So we've seen businesses that use Ramp through the experience, through the integration of all these products, 
save an average of three and a half percent off of their uh, expenses and operating expenses and closing books uh, about eight times faster. So all about helping businesses spend less uh, and save more time and more money. Awesome. I'm sure there's lots of businesses looking to do that at the moment as ever. But yeah, really excited to hear your take on things. And last, but definitely by no means least, it's a very welcome return to Fintech Insider for Peter Collingridge, a mere head of D10X at City. Great to have you here, Peter. I suspect most of our listeners will have heard of City, um, but what can you what can you tell them about your role there in particular? Yeah, well, thank you for having me back. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, so I am part of an internal incubator that is called D10X, and that incubator focuses on opportunities for our institutional clients at City. So that's the corporate banking, the capital markets, the transaction banking, the investment banking, the huge infrastructure in the global financial system. It's super different from retail banking, although I've spent some time doing that as well. It's, it's you know, the stuff you'd expect a city to do. D10X, it's a, it's a very small incubator. It's deliberately staffed by people like me, whose background is in startups and tech companies and who are familiar with and use the approaches and techniques of those startups. We kind of don't say that we're building startups inside City because that would be silly, but um, it's, <laughs> it's the approaches. And my team's responsibilities include researching opportunities and pain points for our clients, which represent the, the, the problems and the projects that we build in the incubator. And it's that research that leads us to client centricity and where jobs to be done comes in. Awesome. Well, yeah, very excited to, to hear your perspective as well as always. So thank you all for joining. Let's dive in. Okay, so I'd love to start us off by looking at some of the current strategies that are kind of in play around customer-centric design. So, I mean, just to get us started, um, sounds like a, a nice phrase, but you know, what, what do we mean by, by being customer-centric? Um, Peter, surely kind of most of our listeners probably think, well, all, all financial services is customer-centric, duh. But like, what do we mean by it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I see client-centricity, customer-centricity really as a, as a mindset and you know, sometimes it's used as a contrast against being product centric, for example, which, you know, is often around leading with your own product and expecting your clients to, to fit their lives around your product rather than the other way around. So we're super lucky that uh, our new CEO, Jane Fraser, she's a huge advocate for client centricity. And empathy has been one of her mantras since she became CEO of City a couple of years ago. And she describes empathy as a competitive advantage. Like she said that empathy is about listening to clients rather than pushing a product or our idea. And I think that's a that's a really great summary. You know, client centricity is really about empathy, which is about which is about listening. So I think there's plenty of scope for that within financial services, which I think have changed massively for the better in the last 10 years, particularly in the sort of neobank domain. And a, and a lot of great disruptive entrants have come into that space to force you know, certainly the retail side of, of companies like City to, to up their game, but there's plenty of scope for, for much more of that. You know, I, I'd say companies that are doing that particularly well, like Stripe comes to mind, they're, they're obsessive about customer centricity in their product design approach. And, you know, despite what's happening in the markets at the moment, they're, they're one of the market leaders for everything. So happy to dive in and, and talk more about this. Awesome. Um, Diego, obviously you probably sit in that disruptor camp that Peter was alluding to. You know, is there anything from your perspective that you'd add to that, that take on customer centricity? Yeah, I think that the one thing I would want to double down on is that this is an exercise in empathy. 
So that is truly the most important thing is like these are all techniques and frameworks by which individuals who are building products and building things can build empathy towards a group of people that are outside of their own personal experience. And I think that is the hardest thing to do uh, in theory and one of the most fundamental things that make people human, which is we interact with each other, we feel for each other, we kind of get each other's emotions and on each other's nerves. And at a certain point, that is just the, the nature of being human. And how do you take those very fundamental things and bring them back into your design practice, into your product practice? At the end of the day, you're building a product or service with a user in mind, whether that be yourself. Hopefully, you're also building and hoping that other people will will find it useful. Uh, so truly the, that exercise in empathy is is the most important thing to find that uh, those insights. Um, I specifically to when it comes to financial services, uh, I couldn't agree more with, with what Peter is saying like the last 10 years have seen uh, an incredible transformation from a, an industry that I you know I, I think it was almost comically under designed uh, <laughs> over the last, 40 years. Uh, and then over the last 10 years, the pressures of just good product, good design in retail have pushed everyone to think deeply and to invest in design, invest in experience and delight and the emotional connection that you have to have with your customers. Absolutely. Um, Will, would you, would you agree with that assessment from Diego about I mean, what we've seen, the change that we've seen in the industry? I do. And I agree with all of the above. You've, those are all the main points uh -oh. around this. <laughs> it's not going to be a good pub conversation if we're all agreeing with each other. <laughs> those are all the main points around this, but I actually think customer centricity is a great thing, but it has to be connected to what is the commercial output and, and, and the result of listening to a customer and actually designing services around their unmet needs because you can't embed anything in a business unless it's going to make them money. And like, you know, from a design perspective, we often overlook or, you know, in, in terms of trying to push through changes, someone can just turn around very easily often and go, yeah, but why? And we go, oh, well, look, the customer's done, you know, this is an unmet need. They're like, well, sure, but why this solution and why should we invest in it? And I think that is the only missing piece in, in the puzzle from what we've said so far, because it does pay off to uh, embed customer centricity, and that's proven across a lot of success stories. But actually having that as a sort of a mantra in the day-to-day -day is, is quite useful as an addition, I think. I mean, Peter, what would you, how would you, how would you kind of come back to that? How would you push like the advantages of you know, being customer centric in design process to people that have that commercial lens or perspective? Yeah, so, so I think where we, the space that we inhabit at D10X is, you know, we, we, we're, I think we're all familiar with the zero to one kind of discussion of new product and new business development. We're very close to that zero. We, we're looking for problems that are worth solving. And that's where we find deep customer insight is most valuable. Because if you can really spend the time to not lead with what your great idea is or what your great product is, but to lead mm -hmm. with what the biggest problems that the clients are having, by its very nature, if you do that successfully, you'll find problems worth solving and they're worth solving, which means they've got a commercial outcome in them because like to Diego's point about either saving time or money or other kind of, you know, deliberate commercial benefits, you're, you, should be fine, you, you should be aligning all of those things at once. So the design is sort of at about 0.5 on, on that spectrum. So I think 
we may be talking about different points of that spectrum. It, it, customer centricity doesn't just happen at the beginning or the middle of the end. It helps with everything from your positioning, your marketing, your pricing, the language you use, or as well as the product and, and the overall problem space that you're looking for. So I would respectfully uh, disagree that the commerciality isn't in, I, I think it's inbuilt in there if you're doing it at the right point. And th yeah, that's certainly where we spend the majority of our time is is looking for those problems right at the at the beginning of it. And yeah, I'm ha happy to kind of talk about it more, but that's that's the that's the that's the value creation. Yeah, no, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll dive into it. I suppose yeah, I, I think we've we've historically, I suppose to Diego's point about how the industry has shifted, I think historically we saw lots of organisations you know, in financial services and beyond kind of starting from the point of, you know, how do we make money? Then sort of thinking about, can we build that? And then thinking about, well, how do we persuade customers to to want this? And I think, you know, but they're the same three questions, but we're just sort of flipping the order really, or sort of asking the industry to flip the order and start from the perspective of, you know, what does the customer want? How could we build that and deliver that? And then there's a whole plethora of options now with the diversification we're seeing in the sort of revenue models within the financial services industry for how you can then take that to market in a commercial way. But you know, we're still asking those, those or looking to examine those same three questions. But I think the order in which you you stack them has a huge influence on on the, the outcome that you get to at, at the end of the day. Um, well, we've talked about you know, customer centricity so it's in quite a broad sense. You know, Peter touched on the introduction, your job to be done specifically, and that's a framework that we use a, a lot at 11FS. So um, would you mind kind of giving our listeners a bit of a 11FS view of, of, of why, why we use that as a framework and, and what you mean by it? I can certainly give it a good go. Effectively, we touched on it earlier. It's, it's, avoid, it's moving away from a product-centric view where you're starting with uh, a solution and perhaps looking at how you might improve the existing solution. It was, it's a, it's a, I think everyone's familiar now versus a few years ago in the market of, of, of jobs to be done now, but Clayton Christensen said, customers don't buy products or services, they pull them into their lives to make progress. We call this progress the job they're trying to get done. And in our metaphor, we say that customers hire products or services to solve these jobs. All good stuff, and I guess the the, the most practical example I I like is the uh, is the lawnmower example. If you ask customers what they want, they'll tell you they want sharper blades, or they want, you know, something that cuts closer to the lawn, or something that feels nice in my hands to grip and uh, makes me look impressive in front of my neighbours. You're going to get into a whole bunch of weird uh, scenarios, but realistically, what they're actually looking for is shorter grass. And if you set out to uh, solve that problem. Does the result even look like a lawnmower at that point? Diego, is, is jobs to be done something that you guys use at a ramp, or is it sort of a different different flavor? What's what, what's your guys' take? Yeah, I think for us, the most important thing is identifying that core, that shorter grass. Uh, I, I like I like that analogy. I've I've heard it a similar from uh, if Henry Ford had asked uh, people what they wanted, he would have built a faster horse. Mm. Um, so I think there's it. The customer centricity comes with a, a bit of responsibility on the designer and, and product side, which I think is to not only know what to listen for and, and when to listen to your customers, but also when to not listen to your customers and when to make a decision that goes against what they're asking or what they're saying. I think at Ramp, we do this a lot. We ask, uh, we have a very specific a group of buyer personas who have a very specific job to do at a company that might be repetitive, might have a lot of tasks, might have a lot of things. And they're asking us, I want to do this task faster. 
I want to do this in less clicks. Uh, and then we ask them, well, what if you didn't have to do it at all? What if we just eliminated this thing that just costs you three hours a week? Mm. What, what would happen then? And that's when you get into the really interesting conversations. Uh, so I think uh, what I was saying about the sort of the contract or the, the, the role responsibility of a designer or a product thinker that's talking to customers is to also have a critical eye towards the ask towards the the goal and try to dive deep into, okay, you have a job to complete. You have a goal that you're trying to set out. Do you need it? Like, is this an underlying goal of your job of like your day to day, or does it actually help your business? Do like you were hired for a reason. Does this job actually contribute to that reason to growing your own business, to growing in your career? Um, so it, it opens up for conversations that are extremely, extremely interesting and push beyond the, here's my product, here's my solution, how do I make it better? But it's, this is your day-to-day, how do I make that better for you? How do I eliminate pieces so that you can just go back home to your family a little bit sooner or actually change what you do to be more strategic or you know try to eliminate as much as possible from there? I love that idea that... that- you know, as a as a recovering product person who's done a lot of product design in the past, you know, it's always tempting to think that you can make something better by doing more product better. But actually just removing any product from the experience is, you know, that radical sim- simplification or reduction to zero is actually arguably the end goal, right? Yeah, th- there was a time when I was I was interviewing a huge tech company and one of their interviews was okay. Let's whiteboard this this kind of experience of what of what you do to make this thing better. And I mapped out this whole thing, and I was really excited about it. And then at the end of it, they said, "Okay, how would you make that simpler?" And I was like, "Oh crap! I would just remove everything apart from this last stage. I would remove all of these kind of nine points, and it's just something else." And that simplification piece, I think, is is massive. In in it's always very tempting to. To, to do more stuff that you can do and make it pretty. Absolutely. Okay, well, we've laid some of the, the land by in terms of what we mean by customer-centric design and, and sort of an intro to jobs to be done. So I'm keen to put our sort of critical hats on maybe and, and start to think about some of the challenges of, of using this framework because I think if if it was super easy, then obviously the world would be perfect and we'd all have amazing <laughs> products all the time. So so let's get, let's get critical. Brilliant, um, yeah. Peter, what are the biggest pain points, do you think, for using a customer-centric framework on the, on a day-to-day basis? Well, well, let's talk about jobs to be done specifically, right? Because I I find it hugely problematic in, in, in many ways. The, like, as something that was invented by a bunch of marketers, the marketing and the language around it and the jargon is really awful. And the terminology is terrible. And you start getting into these really abstract conversations with people about hiring and firing and jobs and four forces and frictions. And it's just like, where am I? And you just, and you, yeah. And it's all really, really helpful stuff, but the barrier to entry on it is really, really high. And I wish that were different. And I get, you know, I, 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 I went to my first jobs to be done workshop over 10 years ago. And I've been thinking that, jobs to be done would sort of blow up and become this ma- like almost like lean startup and it would become this sort of next big thing because it's that powerful and amazing but it just hasn't and i think that is you know for those of us who are practitioners of it it is amazingly powerful and is without doubt 
I would love to find something else different. I'm not, you know, wedded to it other than I love the results from it. But it is incredibly hard to to kind of get other people on on board. So, like, no, nobody is going to argue with you that client centricity is important, like abstractly. But putting it into practice is is much more challenging. I mean, it comes with a really interesting or, or a big cost to the company. Like, it's not cheap to be customer centric and and well to a point you were making earlier about the business need i think as designers and product teams are being asked to understand how this connects to the bottom line of the business that they're working with more and more and that that just has to be part of the design process but specifically there is a cost to being customer centric which means you have to spend the time to get to know your customers to actually talk to people um, i think one of the main failures of the kind of standardizing of the model of jobs to be done and customer centricity is that we've created all these artifacts that we use as a proxy for actually being close to our customers. And the best practitioners here will tell you that there's no substitute to just spending hours every week talking to real humans on the other side using your product. Like you can create these user persona documents with like all the detail and all the stuff, but at the end of the day, it's like hours of your time on a call, in person, with people. That just costs money. It just costs time, it costs effort. Pays off like <laughs> handsomely, uh, but it is, a, it is a commitment. And that's a commitment that needs to be reflected from the uh, intern all the way through the CEO, because they have to put the time into it. Uh, and I think that is, I think one of the biggest challenges to adoption is why would I talk to 10 customers, why would I spend two days doing this when I could just design the thing that's in my head and ship it and be done? Um, so th there is a trade-off and it is expensive. I, I don't want people to think that this is like, oh, I just like got a Figma template and filled it out and now I am customer-centric. It's like I've spent hundreds of hours over the last two months talking to customers. Mm -hmm. Well, what would, you, what would you come back over on that? I think it's really interesting because... Jobs to be done has the potential to save companies a lot of time because the like the biggest risk is often not can I design this in a way where people can use it. It's will I design this and then still no one cares and they don't want to use it because it's not solving a problem. And actually, it's easier to point at uh, a use case for success stories almost than it is at uh, times when you've designed the thing in your head People are like, oh, I love this. I can use this. They start to use it, but ultimately it doesn't prove particularly valuable. I think Jobs to be Done, especially as a, as a framework, is super effective when you have quite a broad, uh, I guess, you're, you're starting out. You haven't already got a, a feature set. That like, and I don't know, Peter, this is probably in line with quite a few things that, that you do at, uh, yeah. at D10X, but I think when businesses are quite evolved, to embed customer centricity actually means changing the way that you operate and the way that your teams are structured. And that is probably the biggest barrier to the adoption of this because like we all come from, from businesses and, and parts of businesses that are set up to, to be around this uh, and, and set up this way. But I mean, a lot of big businesses are still struggle, struggling to even put 
like digital at the heart of their business properly, let alone um, changing the processes to be driven by sort of customer needs and like powered by research. So yeah, I think I'd agree. I, I'd agree. I mean, what, what I guess what I was trying to say earlier is yeah, that approach is really most helpful at the beginning because if you try and retrofit it onto an existing business or product or company, yeah, you are swimming against the culture that exists and sort of culture will eat strategy for breakfast every time, right? <laughs> so your chances of success are, re unless you've got a change of leadership or or something else, it, it's really hard to, to kind of retrofit that stuff on there. But the inverse is sort of true as well, is that if you set up the culture of customer centricity from the beginning and the, the way that you operate, that is encoded into it. And like Diego, I have, I, in, in different roles I've had in my career, yeah, you set your team the goal, which is measured as part of their OKRs of having a customer conversation every single day or two a week or whatever else it is, because it builds that empathy. And once you've got that as your, like that empathy inbuilt into your model, it's really hard to, to build bad products because you're kind of thinking about, oh, I, when I spoke to that person, I've, like they, that, those people's stories just infect what you're doing and make it easier to make good products for them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad that we're kind of talking about this, like actual real world cost as well of, of, of adopting this, because I think lots of people sometimes think that they can just like commission like one study and they'll like do one like intensive period of time where they, they go and speak to customers and then they kind of say, oh, great, we've understood things. And they go off and disappear for two, three years and kind of go into their product loops. And I think that can be quite dangerous. Well, the thing that I'd say is, it's like when you understand your customer and when you understand the job, the progress they're trying to make, like what, 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 what is the outcome they're trying to have in your lives? From a product and a design and an engineering perspective, which is often some of the biggest costs an organization will have, you, you've got a razor through which you can say, is this feature that is going to undoubtedly cost us a lot of time and money and all the rest of it, is this actually going to help them make progress on the thing? And if it is, great, let's do it and let's measure it. Otherwise, let's not. And, and if you don't have that razor or that North Star or whatever you want to call it, effectively, every time you do product management, you're throwing darts into a dartboard and hoping you're going to hit the bullseye. Mm. And your product becomes bloated. You think that you're going to get product market fit by adding more features and instead you're just slowing people down. You've got the salespeople telling you that your competitors have got these features and that in order to get them to sell it, you've got to add those features and everything gets bogged down. Whereas, you know, if you want to build a differentiated product that is going to serve your customers better than, than anything else that's in the market, the ability to say no to things because you understand your customers is a huge cost saving. Like that's, that's the benefit of it. It's an investment. It's not a cost. When you understand them, you can just say no, you can keep the product simpler, you can yeah, keep all of your regression testing simpler and you can keep the team focused. The, I think I would add one one thing to that, Peter, which I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think it's when you, it's an investment, not only in the product, but on the team. So if, you, if you're if you hiring people for the long term, you want people to stay around for many, many years and every single conversation builds in their library. Uh, one of our core principles in our design team is to build intuition. So we, we upfront have new designers spend a lot of time with customers to just start to get in the heads of the people that they are designing for. 
because they are the real experts in the thing that they are doing. We like I was not an accountant, but I could close books today because I've spent so much time with accountants learning from them, listening to them. I wouldn't do a great job. Don't ask me to do it for you. It's probably not going to hold up in, <laughs> in an audit. But uh, th- there is some empathy that, that you build there. And the thing that that enables is that you have a person over time that can make better and better assumptions that are right more and more often. And when they are wrong, they have a clearer path of correction, of fixing mistakes really quickly. Because we're all going to make mistakes. We're going to build the wrong product uh, I'll share an example of Ramp, which is our bill pay, our accounts payable product. Uh, the, we built it in about a month and a half, talking to about 10 customers. When we launched the first version, they all looked at us and just thought we were insane because we had built something that made absolutely no sense to them. Uh, and they said, like, why Why did you guys do this thing? This makes no sense. It was like, oh, okay, well, let's fix it. And that because we were able to do that a month later, we were able to just correct very quickly, rather than spending six months to a year researching and spending all the time trying to like think in our heads about what this product could be. We were making assumptions very quickly and just increasing the accuracy of those bets and those guesses as we went along. So now it's one of our fastest growing products because we were able to get it wrong early. Mm. It kind of de-risked all of our decisions because we were able to correct them right away. So I think that intuition is like one of the key drivers of just constantly betting and making guesses that are hopefully 51% of the time correct or more. I I think that's one of the common misconceptions of customer-centric design because like we know that actually iterating often is a really big principle as part of that. People often mistake it though from you have to spend quite a long time talking to a customer up front and go through a load of things and then you're gonna gonna design something and, and sort of hope for the best. Actually, if you know your customers well, having a hypothesis but going into every time you build something, it's not about um, how quickly can I ship this feature or what can I build or hit targets about what can I learn and that then becomes I mean, obviously, at some point, the product is profitable and it's, uh, it's about growing it. But in those early phases, what can I learn should be the, the purpose behind whatever, whatever is built in, in more of a customer-centric environment. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to be wrong for a second longer than you need to be. Exactly. That's, that's really the, the philosophy behind this. It's just you have customers build close relationships with them. You know, we were talking about simplifying things and simplifying products. If you're simplifying customer-centric design or customer-centric thinking, the simplest version of that is a conversation with customers, constant conversation. That That's really it. So there's all the stuff around it, I think is helpful to build structure and document and learnings and share. Like that's, that's the other big challenge of customer-centric design is that you have a couple of people within the organization that are very centered on like make really making the investment, but how do you circulate and and share, dem- uh, democratize the information and that that those insights. To me, that's one of the biggest challenges of customer-centric design is getting other people to be as customer-centric as, as, as you are. We're just gonna take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. Focus is the latest FinTech Insider podcast strand joining your weekly news and insight shows. We're taking all of those burning financial services questions from across the globe, then hopping continents and crossing borders to put them to the biggest players in the industry. 
Wise is the global fintech that's uh, helping people move money all around the world. So Money Hub is all about helping people be better off with their money. Bit of background on Kareem, we are the leading everyday super app of the Middle East, North Africa and Pakistan region. We're also giving you all of the context to really understand what's going on and get you clued up on financial services globally. These bi-monthly breakdowns are essential listening wherever in the world you're downloading them. Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa on your favorite podcast platform every other Wednesday. Okay, so we've weighed up some of the advantages and some of the challenges, disadvantages. Let's look at what we think the future of customer-centric design might be and, and kind of what might need to improve or, or change. So, well, how far away do you think we are from customer-centric design being properly applied across the spectrum of financial services as a well? whole? I think... I think probably quite far. I think <laughs> it's to the point I made earlier. Like, if people are still struggling to embed digital properly, actually being customer centric is probably out of reach. And whether that means uh, like traditional financial services or businesses that haven't evolved won't continue to go and serve customers, yeah, they will. But actually, um, they probably already have quite a big suite of products. They're trying to iterate them. They're trying to evolve them. Now, involving the customer at some point, presumably, is across financial services. You'd, you'd hope, uh, even if you're just measuring how much people are using journeys and how much they're able to complete them, even if it's from a data angle rather than ever talking to someone. So it's got to be there from some respect. But I really do feel some businesses would would struggle to even get to the the point of uh, talking to customers regularly. Peter, what's what's your take from from where you're sat? So I think, yeah, it's obviously we're not at peak saturation point for client centricity or customer centricity in financial services, right? I I and as I've said earlier, I think it's really hard to retrofit that stuff onto products you've got already, and product development cycles in large banks, not just city, tend to be relatively long but yeah i am seeing and living all sorts of really positive change and seeing exciting stuff going on particularly when it comes to developing new products and services not just inside d10x but a lot of the sort of core stuff or the bau stuff that we do as well so i, I am you know really optimistic and really positive about what i'm seeing at city like so, some examples you know i think we i've been a city for five years probably brought jobs in with me when I when I came. We were talking about it. It's got picked up by the L&D, the learning and development team, pretty quickly. And they now have trained. They've done training in jobs to be done for probably the last three or four years. You know, it's relatively common. Um, there's materials that's, that's available for it. Um, you know, we brought Bob Mester, who is a bit, a bit of a nerdy name, but, you know, developed jobs to be done with... Clay Christensen, he came and spoke at our New York headquarters pre-pandemic. Yeah, he was doing jobs to be done interviews on stage in in our auditorium. You know, so and like for example, just yesterday I had I had a very sophisticated conversation with senior tech leadership about jobs to be done and some of the approaches that we've used in D10X and how that can be used elsewhere. So so I am, you know, we're not where I would love to be, but I'm seeing amazing progress in it. And I think if you look in financial services in general, yeah, I've mentioned Stripe already, but like, you know, the I've got a hunch that the Marcus proposition that Goldman Sachs brought out a few years ago, that 
stinks of jobs to me. It's really simple. It's really clear. It's really customer-centric. Same with the Apple card, which Goldman's behind as well. Like I would be surprised if there wasn't a jobs-to-be-done thing in that. We know that Steve Jobs was a huge fan of Clay Christensen and and a lot of what they do uses jobs as well. So, so I, I, I think the, the competitive pressure from new entrants, whether they're startups or tech companies coming into the space, is only good to help people level up what this is. And in my day-to-day life, I see it at City as well. So, yeah, super excited about it. No, it's a, it's definitely a really positive curve. Um, Diego, I suppose I'm interested in your perspective. Obviously, you know, Ramper are on a huge growth curve. You know, Peter's sort of suggested that maybe jobs or that kind of thinking is it's easiest at that beginning phase. You know, what change do you think we need to see to better support scaling businesses to help them main, like they might start with that customer centricity? But what, how does the industry need to change to kind of maintain that through growth and, and through scaling? Well, I, th- I think the first thing is is I'm really happy to see and, and hear about all the efforts that like the larger companies are doing to be more customer centric. I, I know just out of personal experience, my bank has gotten better over time. Uh, they are for, not, not cities, sorry, Peter, but <laughs> uh, the, the investment that has gone into all these all these apps and all these experiences. Like I'm feeling it as an end end user, and I'm really appreciative of it. Um, I think one of the points that was made earlier is is the most important one. It is a culture thing. Like a, a company is the people that make that product. That is what matters most. That is, I think, at Ramp, our competitive advantage is the people and the frameworks and the culture that we have around those people. Uh, so if a company does not have that as a founding principle, it is, I, I would agree, it is extremely difficult to just like attach this from like, I hired a new head of something and they wanna use jobs and then they're on their own. Uh, it, it really does need to go through and through the whole company. Uh, that's something that it's easier, you would say, argue that it's easier in a startup because you have a small number of people that just have to agree and kind of get passionate about something, usually customers. But again, as, as companies get larger and larger, you have more people to coordinate. You have more people that need to be close to customers. The cost of that is bigger over time. So it, it does kind of grow linearly with the size of the company, the cost to implement something like jobs to be done. What I'm seeing, uh, hoping to, to that this is not true, but like a hypothesis is that um, now that capital is not as cheap or not free anymore, the new entrants are going to have a much harder time uh, and they're going to have to figure out how to reduce those costs. And the large players, established players, will have less of an uh, an incentive to actually change and, and like potentially even slow down the investment on, on, on all this stuff because the competition is simply going to start slowing down. Um, that's that's something that I you know personally hope I'm very wrong about because uh, like the trend the trend for the last ten years has been towards. Uh, building better products for companies small and large. To, to answer your question though, around how have things, how do things change as a company scales? It, it, it just means that you have to really focus on building that as a foundational part of a culture. And that starts with onboarding and that starts with building relationships uh, with the teams that are customer facing. I think one of the best friends of a design team is actually the sales team. Like we are consistently talking to them. We have chat, we've set up so many channels for them to just give direct input. And then we have so many customers to talk to through them. 
it, it's really, really a, a very uh, beautiful like symbiotic relationship where we help them sell in like, what's better to show a customer that you care than like, hey, here's our like head of design and product going to talk to you about this one thing question that you had. Like that just kind of really helps uh, set the pace, but it only works if you mean it. Uh, and you actually show up with the willingness to learn and want to to get some insights and make a better product. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, I think not not at City, but I was at a tech company in, in California for a few years, and one of the scaling challenges, and that was when I first did the, the job stuff about ten years ago. One of the scaling challenges we had was not so much around the job to be done changing, but actually your buyer changing. So you start out by targeting an individual user. And then you gain traction, but then you're there, you're getting to move from a B2C to a B2B customer base. And so you might be selling not to the end user, but to their manager. And then you start scaling up where you're starting to sell it to the to the CFO or the L&D officer or, and, and those, and they all have completely different needs and, and juggling the needs of your end user versus your economic buyer can be really challenging in, in a product sense, because you're, you've always got to make those trade-offs between things that the sales team tells you you need to close the deal versus things that you know your end users want mm. as well. So that's a, that's, that's a more practical, like, oh, hell, how am I going to do this type thing as, like, that comes with scaling? It's, it's more abstract. Like, th that relationship is, is a bit harder to to manage and, and identify like what actually matters to those people because they they care about very different things. And one of the things we've we've found is this is like big shock. Nobody wants to look bad at work in front of their boss. So like they're if they're buying your product and they it doesn't work, they end up looking like they're they don't know what they're doing. So one of the things that customer centricity allows you to do is understand how do your buyers and your customers emotionally connect with the things that you are doing? How does your product make them feel? How does your product, how should it make them feel? And how do they wanna be perceived in the world? What kind of things do they care about? Because just because you build it doesn't mean they'll come. You have to build it and actually position it in a way that makes them care. And making someone care is extremely difficult to do if you don't know that person. So doing that at scale, I think is, you know, making one person care, mm. easy-ish, making a million people care. Now that's where you get into like the proper meat of how do you scale a product and, and how do you build a business around it? Like that is, I think where this starts paying off. Um, they, th th that's where the investment really comes to fruition is like getting to scale in a way that is empathetic and that is feels tailored to each individual. Uh, I'll tell you the story of, of Ramp. I've, as we've scaled, we've it's Peter. You're describing our our history of our buyers. We have our our different segments and and who we're selling to and who who uses our product. We have this very interesting combination. It's what my favorite challenge about the the Ramp design complexity is that we're building a the best one click get card product for a two-person YC company that just started. They don't know, they're, they're not going to do accounting. They don't have a product yet. They have no idea what the IRS is going to ask them for in a year. So like, they don't care about that. And also you have 
10, 12,000 person enterprise that have very, very specific needs. And the incentive for the person buying your product at that point is extremely different from a founder that it's their money, it's their company versus it's my job and it's my career that's on the line. So those two things, incentives are very different. They care about very different things. So building a product that kind of threads through all of these different people and emotions, like that is where you can't do that if you don't know them personally, uh, I think. This is really gutting for me because I had a ton of more questions that I wanted to ask all of you, but unfortunately we've come to the, the tail end of the show. So I suppose I just wanted to wrap on, I suppose a final practical question almost like from all of the breadth of all of your experiences. If you could give you know, one quick practical tip to potential founders or team leaders that you know, they could implement right now to, to kind of change the lever on this, what, what one thing would you suggest people focus on, Will? I'm not going to focus on any of the obvious stuff around customer centricity. I'm going to focus on one of the areas that is often forgotten, and that is how you translate the language you are hearing when you speak to customers through into the language you use when you are doing UX writing and, and where you're actually writing things for customers. Because we often use customer centricity to decide what to build and how and how to design it. But that's nothing if they're feeling alienated by what you say. And if you're actually listening you can then use that to really drive a product that feels like it's something that they're having a conversation with. And that sort of drives loyalty and, un and understanding. And to Diego's earlier point, like a sense of uh, like your affiliation with the brand more than anything else. I'm just going to jump to agree with that one. One of our former team members who's yeah amazingly strong at Jobs to be Done, he now runs a a sort of a growth advisory business for startups called Startup Core Strengths. They've developed a concept called language market fit. A lot of what they do is actually using jobs to be done to improve the language that, that, that you use in your product to help people understand what you're doing, not changing any product at all, because so many of the problems you have are comprehension issues. So I'm agreeing with you. So is your, is your tip to kind of just go use, go use his, his business? <laughs> <laughs> Or her that, business, sorry. No, that would be great. But I think <laughs> I would use, I would argue that actually giving people the challenge of speaking to customers every week and measuring them, whether it's through OKRs or something else or a leaderboard, like actually seeing what happens because building the habit of getting out of the building is the hardest thing to do, but it pays the most dividends. I, at a certain, okay, you can say, well, maybe they're asking crappy questions, but at a certain point, you just you just start asking better questions. So I would just say measure measure people on how, how often they get out of the building. Nice, I like it, Diego. What about you? I think a lot of the the best best things have already been covered. I think the one thing that I would give as as advice is uh, like keep it simple. Your user, like finance people, are people too, and they are they are human, and you can talk to them. Uh, and if you build relationships with people just like you would outside of a product. Like they're not numbers in a spreadsheet. They're not a user count on a, on a data sheet, on a tracker. They are people out there. So uh, the more that you can relate to them person to person, and the more that you can find over time, you will find the ways to scale that relationship and to scale yourself building that relationship, to operationalize all of the overhead that it takes so start doing things that don't scale, start talking to every customer, spend a lot of time with them. Obviously you can't do that forever, but you will find the ways to 
bring down the cost of doing this over time and bringing other people and like just making that part of a culture that you are implementing, bringing to a company, rewarding people for is just probably going to be the most effective way of turning everyone in the company into a design thinker, into a customer thinker. Like that truly is going to transform the way that people think about the product that they're either when they're selling or doing support or any part of the business. At the end of the day, there's a human on the other side who has to use it, a human on the other side who has to love it and buy it and pay for it, hopefully. Um, that's that's really the, like my main point of advice is there's a human on the other side. You can talk to them. You should. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, no, I think I would, I would echo that. I see you know, when we speak to clients with like really great aspirations and intentions, so many of them get hamstrung by this like big perceived process around speaking to customers. Like, you know, I have to be an expert. I have to know precisely the right questions to ask first time. If I want to speak to my customers, I've got to go through like all of this internal bureaucracy to get permission to do that. I've got to not say the wrong thing. Um, so I suppose my top tip would be to either like find external ways to te speak to your customers or to find proxies for your customers to get you started because otherwise you could spend six months trying to find the perfect way to speak to the perfect customer at the perfect time. Um, and I think those those just get started with with those other routes to give you those those first steers. People love to talk, right? If you if you if you find the right people and ask the right questions, you can be surprised by what they'll tell you. It's less scary than think. I did a customer interview just before this call, and I was scared, but it was great. You know? <laughs> Customers aren't scary. That's the main message. <laughs> well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to all of you for for joining me. I've learned a ton from from all of you. Where can people find out more about you and your companies, Peter? Uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn under Peter Collingridge. Uh, City. You can Google. We're probably pretty high on Google for search on City. I suspect they'll crop up. Yeah, Diego. What about you? Well, uh, just look us up on ramp.com, R-A-M-P.com. Awesome. And Will? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And I'd just like to congratulate us all on getting through this without mentioning chat GPT or AI. <laughs> or milkshakes. <laughs> or milkshakes, actually. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter at K8Moody or on LinkedIn at Kate Moody. Well, brilliant. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and please don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or FinTech Inside or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.